Thank you for listening to the podcast of Bible Baptist Church. Please visit our website at www.southbaybbc.org for more information. As we look at these verses concerning the life of Sarah, it's important to note that when you look back at the Genesis account and you see the promises that are made and we look at the patriarchs, the first, of course, was Abraham, Sarah's husband. And the whole thing kind of begins in Genesis chapter number 12. And many of you might be familiar with the calling that God gave to Abraham, but I, I want to look at this real briefly. I know we're looking at the life of Sarah, but I want to take a look at this calling that God had given to Abram or Abraham. In verse number 1 of Genesis chapter number 12, the verses are there on the screen. The Bible says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him, and Abram was 70 and 5 years old when he departed out of Haran. Now, so here is this covenant that is given, this promise that is given to Abraham, the calling along with that promise. But I want you to notice the, the subject and the pronouns that were used. In verse number 1, if you're looking at the verses again, it says, Now the Lord had said unto who? Abram. Not Abram and Sarah, just Abram. Get thee. All right? I know this is a stickler point for many on why on this version of the Bible that we use, but this is actually very significant. The word thee simply means what? It means you. It just means you. But specifically, it doesn't just mean all of you. It means a one-person you, a singular you. Right? We can distinguish between all of you and a one-person you. Those are two different things. And the, the promise and the calling that God is giving is specifically to Abraham, isn't it? To this one individual. We call it the Abrahamic covenant, right? We don't call it the Abrahamic and Sarahic covenant, right? It was given to Abraham. And you notice this pronoun usage throughout the entire promise and calling. Get thee, you Abraham, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. Right? You see this emphasis on Abraham. This is for you. This is what you should do. This is who you should leave. And I will show you the land and I will make of thee a great nation and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and I will curse them that curse thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. It's very specific, right? Making it very crystal clear who he's talking to, right? Who he's talking about. It's about Abraham. Now, the assumption, of course, when he talks about your seed is, it's got to be through Sarah, right? That's the why. That's the assumption. And of course, it should be that way. 
Who is God speaking to? He's speaking to Abraham. Now, Sarah is on the side, maybe hearing about this later, from her husband. So Abraham, at the time of this verse, is how old? How old is he? He's 75 years old. Quite a young man. He's 75 years old. His wife is 10 years younger, so she's 65 at this time. So he is 75, she is 65. They go, they leave their, their country, they leave their father's house, they leave behind everything. Of course, Lot comes with them. But they go. They go to the land, and they're there, living there. They're in the promised land, but still... No children. So Sarah, she's already 65. What do you think Sarah was thinking? Well, this is the promise of God. It has to be true. This is God. His word has to be true. The promise as given in Genesis chapter 12, was crystal clear. Abram, get thee out of thy country and leave thy kindred. You see all of these things? I will bless thee. So when you get to Genesis chapter 16 and you see that passage where, and let's turn to there if you have your Bibles open or the verses will be there on the screen. We get to this passage I think many of us might be familiar with. If you're not familiar with the passage, we'll read it right here. In verse number one, it says, Now Sarai, this was Sarah's name before God changed it, Abram's wife bare him no children. There's no kids. This is at least ten years later. This is ten years since the promise was given. It's been ten years of no children. Already on top of, she was 65 before. So she has no children. And she had a handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said unto Abram, Behold, now the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my maid. It may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarah. Now, this is a ridiculous situation, and this is wrong. Amen? Okay, that's clear. So why would Sarah have suggested it? Right? Why would she have suggested it? I don't know exactly, but it seems that her mindset might be one of, well, I know that God is going to bless my husband Abram because he promised it, but maybe God is going to bless through someone else. That's the idea here, right? Isn't that what Sarah is suggesting? Sarah is suggesting that, well, maybe it's not through me. Maybe it's through someone else. Isn't that what she's saying? That is what she's saying. That's what she's saying. Genesis chapter 17, though, God comes back 
and he makes it very clear. Verse 15. And God said unto Abraham, As for Sarai thy wife, thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall her name be. And I will bless her and give thee a son also of her. I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. Then Abraham fell, Abraham fell upon his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that is a hundred years old? And shall Sarah that is ninety years old bear? So Abraham at this time is ninety-nine. He's saying, Am I going to have a child when I turn a hundred years old? And my wife is eighty-nine. Is she going to have a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said unto God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. And God said, Sarah, thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed. And thou shalt call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. Most of the time when we look at Sarah, we see maybe the weakness of Sarah. And you, could, you couldn't really fault her for that weakness, right? Because we're talking about having children. She's 89 years old. How many 89-year-olds do you know are talking about, I hope to have a child? Right? You don't see that. So you could kind of empathize with Sarah why she would think that. But here's what I see when it comes to our theme of enlarging our tent, our theme of living by faith, is this, that God doesn't just want to work through others around you, God wants to work through you. God doesn't just want to work through others near you or around you. God wants to work through you. God doesn't just want to work through your husband. He wants to work through you. God doesn't want to just work through your wife. He wants to work through you. God doesn't just want to work through your parents. He wants to work through you. You know, God doesn't want to just work through your children. He wants to work through you. God doesn't want to just work through the pastors of the church. He wants to work through you. God doesn't want to just work through your friends. He wants to work through you. God wants to work through each and every single one of us. Amen. God wants to work through you. And not only does God want to work through you, God can work through each and every one of you. God can work through you. You say, oh, I don't know. I, I don't know if I could be used to the Lord in this way, and I don't know how God would use me. Well, God can and wants to use you. And for the, those of you that are maybe serving the Lord and, and uh, following his calling and things like that, God wants to work in you in an even greater way. God wants us to grow our faith so that God could work through us in a greater way. James chapter 1, verse number 3 says, Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh 
patience, that the trying and testing of our faith produces fruit, the fruit of patience. But let patience have a perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. God wants to try and test your faith so that it can grow. For those of you that, you know, you go to the gym and you're trying to gain some muscle mass, what do you need to do in order to build muscle? You need to test or push your muscles, right? If, let's say, you go to the gym and you're doing a bench press and you can bench press 100 pounds, if you want to grow, you can't just stay at 100 pounds. you got to go up right? you got to go up to 105 pounds. Test your muscles. Push it a little bit. Same with knowledge. You want to grow in knowledge, you've got to be presented with a problem that you haven't seen before, that you haven't solved before, and push the limits of your knowledge so that you could grow. If every kid was just given the same two plus two problems their entire lives, they would never grow, right? You present them with harder problems, more difficult problems, with new ideas so that they would grow. And God wants our faith to grow so that it can produce fruit. George Mueller is a man that some of you might be familiar with. He ran an orphanage for many years, and, and uh, thousands and thousands of orphans lived in his home. And he had this idea that, you know what, there are at any moment hundreds, maybe even thousands of orphans in his home at any one time, and obviously there would be great needs, but he never went around telling anybody about his needs. Oh, you know what, this month we're, we're about a, you know, a thousand dollars short, pray for us, and you know, if you could send us something. He didn't do any of that. He didn't tell anybody about his uh, financial issues or problems. In fact, it's written that, that he had, at times, they would set up all of the plates and the, and the silverware in the morning time for breakfast, George Mueller knowing they didn't have any food. So they just set it up anyway, though, and he prayed, and, and food came, and, and uh, you know, a milk truck broke down in front of their place, and, and we, we went in, and he knocked on the door, and he said, my, my, my thing broke down, and, and I can't, you know, this is going to go bad. Can you use any milk? And he's like, yes, I'm running an orphanage. I could definitely use some milk. And, and this is what he said about faith. He said, God delights to increase the faith of his children. We ought, instead of wanting no trials before victory, no exercise for patience, to be willing to take them from God's hand as a means. Trials, obstacles, difficulties, and sometimes defeats are the very food of faith. You know, God wants to increase your faith. We need to feed our faith. And I want to see that God wants to grow us our faith by showing us these three things about himself. Three characteristics about himself. Number one, God is strong when we are weak. God is strong when we are weak. Verse number 11 says, Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed. 
when we read about the passage in, in Genesis and the verses that we read, how many children did Sarah have? How many did she have? Well, at the time that we read the passages, she had none, right? Eventually she had one, but at the time when we read those verses, she had zero children. Did she want children? Of course she did. She wanted children. So did Abraham. So they're trying to have children. I don't know how long they've been married, but they've been trying for a very long time. You can forgive them if, the, if maybe Sarah came to the conclusion, we just can't have children. Right? You can forgive her for coming to the conclusion, we're just not having any children. I can't have any children. It is in this place that Sarah was able to have a faith-growing opportunity. George Mueller again says this, Faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. There is no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. Faith begins where man's power ends. Luke chapter 18, verse 27 says, And he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Why did God wait so long? Why did God push for so many years without giving her any children? I believe it's because Sarah needed to come to the place where she realized it's not possible. I mean, she's already 65 at the time of the calling in Genesis chapter number 12. If by 65 you haven't given up hope, I mean, you already have pretty good faith. Amen? Right? If you're 65 and you're sitting there, there's hope. I can still have a child. I mean, that's tremendous faith. I think she was a tremendous individual of faith at 65. And for 10 years, she continued to have faith. Oh, God said it. We're going to have children. Now she had a moment where she said, you know what? It's not possible. And you can even see Abraham also came to that same point. In his heart, he laughed. We didn't read the verse, but Sarah also laughed within her heart. Oh, God, me have a child? I mean, it's so impossible, it's laughable. I mean, that's the way that she was thinking. But it's when we come to the realm of the impossible that God shows that he can do anything. Sarah came to the point where she realized, I can't do it. I'm not strong enough. I don't have the ability. I can't do it. And that's when God stepped in and said, now let me show you what I can do. You know, there's a story in John chapter number 21. In John chapter number 21, this is after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's been crucified. You know, he was betrayed, crucified, he was buried, and he rose again. John chapter 21 is after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there's an interesting story about Peter and some of the apostles. It says in verse number 1, After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and on this wise showed he himself. So after the resurrection, Jesus, you remember, he was in the upper room and he showed himself to the disciples. They had locked themselves in, if you remember that. And then now he is showing himself again. 
Verse number two, there were together Simon Peter, all right, so Peter is there, and Thomas, called Didymus, so Thomas is there, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee. Who are the sons of Zebedee? They are James and John, and two other of his disciples. So there's Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James and John, and two of the disciples. All right, you know Judas, Judas has died now, so seven out of the eleven are here together. And Simon Peter said unto them, I go a fishing. They say unto him, We also go with me. All right? It's natural that Peter would want to go fishing. That's where he was from, right? It's natural that James and John maybe would want to go with them because they were fishermen as well. Why is Thomas there, though? Thomas isn't a fisherman, but he says, I'm going to go too. Nathaniel goes along as well. These two other disciples, they all go along. So they're all going fishing. We also go with me. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately. And that night they caught how much? Nothing. They are professional fishermen. Their only job is to catch fish. And they caught no fish. But. When morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said unto them, children, have ye any meat? Did you catch anything? They answered him, no. I think that's how they said it, right? No. Why are you asking me? No, we didn't catch anything, okay? No. Verse 6. And he said unto them, cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find Okay. Now the Bible says they didn't know that this was Jesus. All right? So it's just somebody on the shore calling out to them, asking them. These are professional fishermen. They've been out all night trying to catch fish. And then somebody on the shore tries to tell them how to catch fish. You ever been driving? And somebody next to you tries to tell you how to drive, we call that backseat driving, right? You ever, have, you ever have that? This is kind of what I think Peter is thinking. He's like, I'm the fisherman. I know how to fish. You're suggesting to me that my problem was that I was casting on the left side or instead of the right side? What difference does it make? This side and that side. I'm going to catch something on that side, but they cast the net. They cast their four, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, this is John, saith unto Peter, it is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he gird his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked and did cast himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from land. But as it were, 200 cubits dragging the net with fishes. So, the story is fully understood when you get to verse number 8. Because the disciples, why did Jesus cast himself into the sea? Because he's almost there at land. Right? They've been fishing all night and they are coming back to land. And it says that they are about 200 cubits from the shore. Alright? If you take... 18 inches to be a cubit, roughly, they're about 300 feet from shore, okay? 
they're very close, right? Professional fishermen, they're not casting a reel. What are they doing? They're throwing out their nets, right? You don't throw out your nets that close to shore. They would go out into the middle of the sea and then, and then they would cast their nets. Meaning this, they had done all that they could all night long and they had given up, right? They're coming back. It's just today's not our day. We just couldn't catch anything. And Jesus tells them to cast on the other side and it's so full that they are dragging the net behind the ship. It says in verse number 9, as, as soon then as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid thereon and bread. Jesus saith unto them, bring up, the, bring up the fish which ye have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of great fishes, an hundred and fifty-three. And for all there were so many, yet was not the net broken. What is Jesus doing here? He could have at any time called out to the fishermen, right? He could have walked on the water to get to the fishermen, but he didn't. When did he call out to Peter and the other disciples? After they'd been out all night long, after they'd been trying all of their techniques, after they said, we're just not able to catch anything today, and they are coming back to shore, Jesus shows them, when you are at the end of your ability, I can show you a miracle. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse number 9, And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Maybe there's somebody here in this auditorium that's thinking, you know what? Uh, I, I would love to be able to do something for God. I would love for God to work through me. I would love to see God's power shown in my life and, and doing something through me, but I, I just don't have anything. I don't have any abilities. I don't have any money. I don't have any resources. I don't have any skills. I don't have all of these things. God says, you're the perfect candidate for me to work through. Because when we become weak, then we receive the power of God. You say, I, I feel like a, 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 an individual that doesn't have a lot of skills or abilities. Oh, you're the perfect candidate for God to work through you. Sarah had lost the strength to bear children, and it was at that moment that God worked and showed God is strong when we are weak. Secondly, I see that God is on time when we are late. Verse number, 12, uh, verse number 11 through faith, Sarah, also Sarah, received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. All right, I've, I've made mention of Sarah's age. At the time of the calling in Genesis chapter number 12, Sarah is 65. When did she have Isaac? 90. That's 20 Five years. If 65 is not late enough already, 90 is very late. 
right? If you're thinking about having children, right? If you're thinking at 65, it's pretty late, right? You know, you think about having children, you know, generally 20s and 30s, right? Generally, when you think about having children. Have you heard about kids being born with their moms in their 40s? Yeah, right? We know people. I know people. They had kids when they were in their 40s. 50s? Anybody? 60s? 70s? Can you imagine an infant taking care of an infant in your 70s? In your 80s? 85? Sarah, I mean, I know God's promise, but it's kind of late, isn't it? You're a little bit late. It's past time. You had an opportunity, but now it's gone. It's too late. Before you had a chance, before you had opportunity, before you could have had children, but now your time has passed. God is on time. God is on time. Even when we think that our window of opportunity has passed. Think about the life of Moses. Moses lived in Egypt for 40 years. And he was cast out of the, of the nation. And for 40 years, he lived in the wilderness as a shepherd, away from his brothers and his sisters, his, his family. For 80 years, he's, he's been living here and there. And, and then God comes out of the burning bush and he says, I want you to deliver my people. It could have been tempting to say, you know what, it's too late. Moses made all sorts of excuses why he couldn't go. And God says, it's time. Ezekiel chapter 37 gives us a, a prophecy, a very important one. Ezekiel chapter 37, verse number 1 says, The hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, which was full of bones. So here is Ezekiel, and he's carried by the spirit and set down in the middle of a valley that is full full of bones, and caused me to pass by them round about, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and lo, they were very dry. Right? So God takes his spirit, moves Ezekiel, is now in a valley, and he says, Ezekiel, I want you to walk all around. I want you to see this whole valley. And so he's walking all around, and he sees there are very many bones that are very dry. And in verse number three, he says unto me, son of man, can these bones live? These very many, very dry bones. Do bones live? No. But Ezekiel, he says, and I answered him, O Lord God, thou knowest. God, oh, you know. Again, he said unto me, Prophesy upon these bones and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. 
Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. And I will lay sinew upon you, and will bring up flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and ye shall live, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. How do we know that God is the Lord when these very dry bones come up and they live again? So verse number 8. Oh, verse number 7. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise. And behold, a shaking, and the bones came together, bone to his bone. And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. So Ezekiel prophesies to a valley full of very dry bones. All right? If we could just kind of stand on the mountainside and look down at this site, we would probably chuckle to ourselves. Right? Here is a man in a valley with no people, just a bunch of bones, prophesying, speaking to the bones that they are going to live. And a noise comes and the bones, they come together. And the flesh and the muscle and the skin, they all come together. But there was no breath in them. Verse 9, then said he unto me, prophesy unto the wind, prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, thus saith the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and, I, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceeding great army. Okay. That's great. There's a bunch of very dry bones. The prophet prophesies. They come together and they come back to life. What does that even mean? Well, God tells us what it means. Verse number 11. Then he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. What are these bones? It's the nation of Israel. The Israelites. Behold, they say, our bones are dried and our hope is lost. We are cut off for our parts. Therefore prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and, come, and cause you to come out, out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Do you see what God is prophesying here? He's saying... The nation, it's, it's gone. It's scattered. The people are all over the place. There is no nation of Israel. And there hadn't been for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, nearly 2,000 years. And then, guess what happened? The nation came alive again. What nation have you heard of? that died 2,000 years ago coming back to life. You, that doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. But God made it happen. And there are people that said, oh, it's gone, it's over, there's nothing left. God says, no, I can still do something. I can still work a miracle. John chapter 11 gives us the story of Lazarus. Lazarus passes away. In verse number 1, it says, Now a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. 
It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, thou whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, The sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And when he heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. So Mary and Martha, they tell Jesus, our brother Lazarus is sick. You know Lazarus, you love Lazarus, come and heal him. And Jesus, loving them, waited two more days. When he gets there, Lazarus has been dead four days already. And I want you to see in verse number 20 what, what happens. In verse 20 it says, Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. You know what Martha is saying? Martha is saying, Jesus, you're too late. Jesus, if you'd have come earlier, you could have healed him. But now, it's too late. But you know what Jesus does. He resurrects Lazarus from the dead. Telling me this. It's never too late with God. It's never too late with God. Sometimes we want to say, oh, you know, I had an opportunity when I was younger. In my earlier days, I had a chance. I had an opportunity, but I missed the opportunity. So, you know what? I, I, it's over. I, I can't serve in that way. I can't do this. I can't do that. You know, my, uh, my opportunity had come, and it is gone. But you know what God is saying to us, I believe, is that God can use us no matter where we are. Even if you feel like, you know what, uh, the, the days of my serving, the days of my opportunity, they were back then. But you know what? God used Moses when he was 80 years old. God used Sarah when she was 90 years old. It's never too late with God. It's never too late with God. So commit yourself to serving God today. God is strong when we are weak. God is on time when we are late. Thirdly, I see that God is big when we are small. Verse number 12, Therefore sprang there even of one, and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. If you're trying to build a nation, having one child doesn't get you very far. Right? Abraham has how many children? Well, he has Ishmael, of course, but the promise is through who? Isaac. One. One child. One dear, precious child. But out of that one came a great nation. God will take your one and multiply it to be great. In the Old Testament, in 2 Kings chapter 4, there's a story of a woman 
her husband has passed away. She's a widow, and she has two sons. They're in debt, and the, the creditors are going to come take the sons basically to pay for the payment of the debt. And this widow woman doesn't know what to do. Her husband has passed. She doesn't have any income. She doesn't have any money. So she goes to the prophet Elisha and says, Elisha, I, this is the situation. I'm in trouble. I don't know what to do. What can I do? Do something. And you know what Elisha says? Elisha asks her, what do you have? And she says, I have a pot of oil. I have a little jar that I would use to cook food. I don't even have food, oil to cook the food. And he says, God will use that. Go take as many jars as you can find, empty jars, bring them into your house. When you have as many as you can get, you close the doors, and then you just fill the jars. So she, she gathers everything together, she takes the jar, and she begins to pour. And she pours until every one of the jars is full. God took what she had and produced a miracle. The feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6. You remember what Jesus did? Remember there are thousands of people that are, they've been with Jesus for days, and they're hungry. They need to be fed. And Jesus says to the disciples, what are we going to do about these people? How are we going to feed them? And the disciples respond, we can't feed these people. Philip says, when shall we buy bread that these may eat? We can't buy enough food to feed 5,000 people. But Andrew comes and says, well, there's a boy here. He's got five loaves and two fishes. But what are they among so many? Andrew's mentality is, we don't have enough. Jesus says, give me what you got, and I'll make it enough. Moses, when he met God, at the burning bush. He's there. He's a shepherd. He's, he doesn't have anything. And God's trying to work on him. And, and Moses is like, oh, you know, if I go, uh, the Pharaoh's not going to believe me. The people won't believe me. You know, I'm bad at speech. He's giving all sorts of excuses. And you remember what one of God's responses was to Moses? He said, what is in thine hand? You remember that question? What was in Moses' hand? A rod. A stick. God, what's in my hand? I have a stick. And Moses says, I'll use that stick. Throw it on the ground. And it turns into a serpent. And he says, pick it up by the tail. He picks it up by the tail and it turns back into a rod. You know what God wants to do through you? He wants to take what you have and turn it into a miracle. You would say, I have a lot of money. God's going to ask you, what do you have? What do you have in your house? All I have is a jar of oil. God will use that. What do you have in your hand? God, I don't have anything. I have a stick. That's what I have. God says, I'll use that. You say, oh, I, I don't have uh, 5,000. I just have a lunch for a little boy. Not even for a man, a little boy. A little boy's lunch. Enough to feed a child. 
But what is that? God says, I'll take it. I'll use it. God will take what you give and turn it into a miracle. I, I don't know what I have. Whatever it is that you have, give it to God. You say, I don't have a lot of time. Give your time to God. You say, I don't have a lot of talents. Give them to God. Give whatever it is that you have to the Lord and say, God, if you'll use me, use me. I don't have much. I just have a little jar of oil. I just have a stick in my hand. I just have a little boy's lunch. But God is big when we are small. God wants to work through you. You say, I don't have much. God will take what you have and work through you. You say, oh, I had a chance before, but it's past time. God will take the time that you have left and work through you. You might say, I tried that before and it didn't work. And I can't do it. Well, God is strong when you are weak. I want to read you one last thing. Again, to quote George Mueller, he said this, We should not shrink from opportunities where our faith may be tried. The more I am in a position to be tried in faith, the more I will have the opportunity of seeing God's help and deliverance. Every fresh instance in which he helps and delivers me will increase my faith. The believer should not shrink from situations, positions, or circumstances in which his faith may be tried. But he should cheerfully embrace them as opportunities to see the hand of God stretched out in help and deliverance. Thus, his faith will be strengthened. Let's have a strong faith. Let's have a strong faith by trusting God, knowing that when we are strong, he is strong.